This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is six, I guess. Correct. We're doing the twelve episodes of Christmas around Christmas. I think I think people do wonder about like what that sound is in the background. One of the people that listens to the show regularly told me that they never notice it, but there are dogs that sit with me that are older now. They're much older dogs. Uh, so they sit with me while we're recording. They'll give me like X amount of time and they're really quiet. And then suddenly they'll start talking or barking or whatever. The thing I hear the most is um, the nails on the floor. Yeah, that's so that's the oldest dog. We think he's around 14. He's a chocolate lab. But he, um, he is usually laying pretty close to me and being pretty calm and chill. And then the, we have other dogs that are way more active. One of them goes away during the day. Like he goes to, we joke and say he goes to school, but uh, it's my teenager's dog. He goes to like a, a daycare uh, once or twice a week so that I can record and do other things. Right. And occasionally my dogs have made an appearance because I guess you can't always quite get them out. But I know that Fanny was barking on one of the recent episodes, just like one bark got in. Yeah. I, 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 there you go. That Uh, wasn't my dog though. But I, I cut a lot of it, but it it can be where a little bit of it makes its way in. And I, I try to get to the mute button in time, but I just, uh, sometimes I, I'm surprised my dogs don't bark a whole lot, but when they do, I usually need to take notice. So same here, I can see it coming and I'll hit mute. And sometimes I get it in time and sometimes I don't, sometimes I have too many windows open on my computer and I just can't get it in time. But, uh, yeah, so <laughs> I, the, the only noise I ever, I usually know what the noises are when I listen back to the show. Cause I was there. Uh, the only one I noticed the most is uh, the clicking, the nails clicking. Yeah, so I, we do have that occasionally. We're trying to get 12 episodes done for Christmas in a short period of time where they start coming out like in a way that sort of lines up between... 12 days of Christmas. 10, yeah, 10 days before Christmas Day and then the day after. It's a lot of extra recording time that goes into that because while we've... You know, we have episodes we've never released, and I thought about just doing some of those, but then that didn't turn out to be uh, what we were doing. We did mostly December-ish, Christmas-ish cases. This one is not a Christmas-ish case, sort of a current case. I saw that it was covered a couple of different places in the last few days. This is a case out of Northern California where a woman was found dead on September 24th. 4th of 1996 in a basement bathroom of a restaurant where she was working as a a waitress. But authorities in Northern California have now charged a suspect who is already serving a life sentence in the 1996 cold case murder of Priscilla Lewis in Crockett, California, which is in the East Bay region of San Francisco. 
They submitted additional DNA analysis to the lab in 2020, where it was able to be analyzed for the first time. It was matched to a California inmate named Danny Lamont Hill Hamilton. He's 51. He's in Southern California. He's already serving a life sentence on, on unrelated sexual assault charges. Uh, he was charged with one count of murder with several enhancements, including lying in wait, felony murder kidnapping, kidnapping, felony murder burglary, and felony murder during an attempted rape. He apparently drowned Lewis during an attempted robbery and rape at the new restaurant. And, uh, you know, this is one of those things where the, the family was very active in trying to get the cold case investigators to work this particular case. What do you think of this one? Um, I, I think it's weird that uh, she was drowned. And, of course, there's not a whole lot of details given out, but I immediately think, oh my gosh, he had that poor girl's head in the toilet. That's what I think to myself, right? I was picturing that or a mop bucket. Yeah, maybe. Uh, that would be slightly better, but I just, uh, it's really terrible. This is a situation where, now, I don't know anything about the details of, you know, why he was serving a life sentence it's it's interesting to me that the DNA, I guess it, it must be a retroactive thing where they actually had to make the effort to test it against the system. So, because you're looking at a situation where if your DNA is in CODIS and if you're arrested on a violent criminal charge, definitely murder and some other crimes that aren't murders, but violent crimes are crimes that DNA could be useful, like stalking and things like that. They take a DNA sample and they run it in CODIS. Yeah. At least that's my impression of what's thought to have happened. And so I wonder if it just took this long to get it together. As far as the match being made now, as opposed to at the time he went into the system, I know that it's not like, uh, let's see, she was killed in 1996. So that would have been a little early. So there, it, it was probably part of like a backlogged, you know, because once CODIS began running DNA, they've got to get DNA entered from cases older than the comparison system itself, right? Meaning that like cases that happened earlier, they have evidence that could potentially have DNA, but it, that just doesn't magically happen. They have to have some sort of way of, you know, running stuff and getting those results and profiles put into the system. And then as people are arrested on crimes where it's appropriate to take their DNA and run it against the system, it happens. And so I would guess that either this guy's crime that he's serving the life sentence for happened before he was required to give DNA or the test on the materials related to Priscilla Lewis's death just hadn't been forensically uh, examined and entered into the system. I haven't seen any uh, additional details about like how it came to be that like now is when they're matching it. Um, I knew that her cousin was pushing detectives on the, or maybe cold case detectives. I don't know. They were pushing for them to get it solved. Uh, and, you know, it has been a long time now, 1996. So this guy was in prison as of 2002. He had previously been incarcerated from 1999 to 2002 
in the Martinez detention facility. And then the more serious charges that he, they netted him a sentence of about 295 years, although the parole board will start looking at him in 2029, according to his uh, inmate record. I think that this case being a murder will be, I think this will be the, the final nail in the coffin. And I do think what the delay was is I think they went back through previous materials to see if they could find a better source for a profile. I think that that basically because it happened in 1996, I think they just have a rolling list of unsolved cases that they get eligible for sort of newer technology. Maybe the rape kit. That's what I was thinking was either the rape kit or something found at the scene that had been confirmed to be another, like another person than the victim. You know, that would be a, a, a bathroom in a restaurant would be a weird place to collect evidence. So I'm thinking that the rape kit is the most likely source for this DNA where they were, you know, maybe didn't get a great profile before and now they have it and they've run it. Or they just didn't have anything. They didn't have a hit comparing it. That's definitely a possibility. Because like I said, um, you know, all that stuff has to catch up. And so we've seen in some of the cases that we've done that investigators have had the wherewithal long before we had any idea it was going to be relevant to keep things, right? Especially right. in sexual assault kits cases. And, you know, that's typically a, a rape kit and where it was, I mean, practically useless before unless they were just trying to narrow it down. Any of those, that evidence that's been preserved all these years, and I'm talking 30, 30, 40 years, you know, later, which would be now, of course, that's just in the 80s. It's not really that far uh, long ago, but any of those appropriately preserved pieces of evidence can now be get DNA profiles. And we've got this huge, not, I'm not talking about like building a profile, but just a straight match against people who have, are in CODIS. And usually it's because of some sort of violent offense is how your DNA ends up in CODIS. So, you know, that's a completely different situation than forensic genealogy, which is where they have a sample that they build a profile from, right? Right. So this is actually where they were able to match it up. And I think it's fascinating that they had, I mean, in 96, I know DNA, it was a thing. It wasn't like a thing like it is now, but it was already it was known at that point in time and it was really expensive to test and it wasn't uh, used as thoroughly, but it's good to see that cases are coming up. It's unfortunate that it took this long, but I'm sure they're doing the best they can as far as, you know, catching up and getting stuff matched up. But it just so happens he's in jail. Part of the reason why this like sort of retroactive testing, uh, inputting, the samples and the profiles into the database works is because these a lot of times these offenders reoffend. Yes. And so what he's in jail for in 2002, he was convicted of rape by force or fear. Uh, he was also convicted of lewd or lascivious acts with a child under the age of 14. And then he was convicted of lewd or lascivious acts with a dependent person by a caretaker and oral copulation with a minor under 14 years of age, more than a 10-year age difference between the offender and the victim. He would have been around 30 at the time. Yeah, that guy's just gross. Looks like there may be some justice coming for 
Priscilla Lewis. That's that's good. I hope so. It is weird that she drowned. That's a weird. That's weird. In she a was, bathroom. It is. Uh, I think it's called the Four Corners Restaurant in uh, the area she died. Yeah. Well, hopefully that will bring some closure um, for her family. And he will stay where he belongs. Yeah, it definitely seems like he belongs there. We're continuing Christmas cases here. Uh, had you ever heard of this next one? I am not sure. So it's a 2013 case, and it completely, like, it was off the radar for me. I didn't see it when it happened. All the articles I found were from either immediately after it or right after the court actions. This is for a shooting. It's so interesting. Like, the court documents themselves are a little weird. It reads that, so first of all, this is three people killed. This is Salvatore or Sal Belvedere and his brother, Johnny Belvedere. And Johnny's fiance, who is Iona Flint. Now, they are 22, 24, and 22. So Sal is 22, Johnny's 24, and Johnny's fiance is 22, Iona. It says that Johnny was killed sometime between December 23rd, 2013, and January 17th, 2014, although evidence suggests it was December 23rd, 2013. And Sal and Flint were gunned down in the parking lot of the Westfield Mission Valley Mall on Christmas Eve 2013. The gentleman that they have put this on is a guy named Carlo Mercado. He was a little older than them. He was 31 in 2017, so he would have been about 27. Uh, In February of 2016, Mercado pleaded not guilty to the murders, but then he changed his plea right before his trial was slated to begin uh, in uh, his his trial was supposed to be in April 3rd, 2017, but he changed his plea in January of 2017. He pled guilty to personally using a firearm to kill Sal, Johnny, and Iona. And like this was a mysterious case when it happened. It basically sat unsolved for a little while, although the, there were suspicions. And there was not a whole lot going on when uh, Mercado pled guilty and the judge sentenced him to three consecutive sentences of life without parole, one for each murder victim. And the guy had absolutely no emotion. He gave up his right to appeal. And then when he was given an opportunity to address the families of the victims in court, he glanced over at his lawyers and he said, no, he didn't have anything to say to them. San Diego County Deputy District Attorney Brian Erickson told NBC News 7 in San Diego, that the killings were nothing more than a random act of violence, likely sparked by either road rage or carjacking. He said the victims in Mercado did not know each other, which is why this case is so difficult to understand. I can't figure out how he killed all three of them the way they described, but this is what they say happened. The timeline of the killings likely unfolded where on December 23rd, 2013, Mercado was riding his motorcycle near Westfield Mission Valley Mall when his motorcycle broke down. At this point, Mercado may have gotten into some type of argument, possibly a road rage type argument with Johnny over unknown circumstances. Johnny was sitting in his car parked at the mall that night because he was picking up Iona from her job at the mall. Mercado saw Johnny in his car and walked up to him. He confronted Johnny and maybe tried to steal his car. Erickson said that Mercado then shot and killed Johnny while Johnny was on the phone with his cousin. The line goes dead. The defendant wanted the car, according to the prosecutor. He walked up to it, does not know who the driver of the car, and just outright shoots him and takes his car. 
after he shot him, he pushes the body over to the passenger seat where Johnny literally bled out in his own vehicle. After that, with Johnny's body in the car, Erickson said Mercado drove the car back toward his home in Mira Mesa. He stopped at a gas station and put gas in Johnny's car. Erickson said that Mercado's DNA was later found on the gas cap of the victim's car. About an hour and a half later, Erickson said that Mercado drove back to the Westfield Mission Valley Mall, likely to pick up his motorcycle, which he knew connected him to the scene of Johnny's murder. At the time, Erickson said Mercado had no idea that Sal and Flint would be in the parking lot of the mall. Sal and Flint were there looking for Johnny, worried after Johnny had failed to pick Flint up from work that night as promised. They were waiting in the parking lot for Johnny, wondering where he was. They, they were calling hospitals, they called the jail, they called several different places looking for him in a panic. At that moment, Mercado pulled up to the parking lot in Johnny's car, and Sal and Flint saw the car. Perhaps they thought that Johnny was behind the wheel or realized that someone else was driving. They motioned for the vehicle to come over. Erickson said that Iona Flint quickly realized something was off, that it wasn't Johnny driving the car, and she dialed 911. It's 1 a.m., my boyfriend's not here, and someone else just pulled up in his car, Flint thought. This is Erickson describing what he thinks the, the timeline is. She calls 911, and Mr. Mercado doesn't even give her a chance. He guns her down, shooting her in the back, and then he shoots Sal. Erickson said Mercado used a 22 caliber gun to shoot Flint and Sal. The gun was equipped with a sound suppressor or a silencer, which is why the shooting is not clearly heard on Iona Flint's call to 911. Erickson said the victims were all simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that these random killings could have happened to anyone that night, no matter how difficult that concept may be for the community members to grasp. He said the victims had nothing to do with Mercado before their slayings, and the killings were in no way their fault. Gianni, Sal, and Iona had nothing to do with their demise, had nothing to do with them being murdered. A lot of people have a hard time accepting that because they think, oh, they must have done something, but they didn't. They didn't do anything. This could have been any one of us in the parking lot that night. Sal and Johnny's sister, Antoinette Belvedere, read a letter in court on Thursday on behalf of her mother. The letter said the family's lives had been forever changed by the murders of their loved ones. This unbearable pain is to stay for all of these difficult and heartbreaking years, three years that feel like 30. May God continue to grant me the grace and courage and strength to somehow endure, Antoinette read from her mother's letter. The family of the victims brought photos of Johnny, Sal, and Iona to court, and the judge ordered Mercado to look at them. After the killings, Erickson said that Mercado put fake license plate on Johnny's car and parked the vehicle near his home and work in Mira Mesa. Johnny's body was left in the trunk of the car for three weeks. Mercado went to a Target store to buy Febreze air freshener as he, uh, he worked at the Target store, by the way. This was his attempt to cover up the stench of the body, and at one point, he even tried to sell the stolen vehicle. Three weeks later, he drove the car to Riverside, California, and abandoned it in the parking lot of a shopping center more than 100, 100 miles away from San Diego. On January 17th of 2014, police found Johnny's badly decomposed body stuffed into the trunk of his own car in that lot in Riverside. For five months, there was no break in the baffling triple homicide case, but on June 20th, 2014, Mercado was arrested as a suspect in the slayings. And thus began more than two and a half years of legal proceedings involving Mercado, including competency hearings. 
Mercado's pretrial in early September 2014 and his hospitalization in late 2016 of July, in late July 2016, until his guilty plea in January of 2017. Today's guilty plea holds the defendant accountable and is a small measure of justice for the families of the victims, allowing them to avoid the emotional toll of a lengthy trial, said District Attorney Bonnie DeMontis in a press release this Thursday. Their senseless murder shocked San Diego during the holidays three years ago. The team who prosecuted the defendant worked tirelessly in the pursuit of justice in order to reach an outcome that will send the murderer to prison for the rest of his life. It's a crazy case, man. It really is. I don't know if you... Uh, so the reason when you said, had I heard of this case before, is I... I'm not sure if I heard it before, but I thought that I had of. I had, uh, at least in passing, I haven't ever researched it uh, thoroughly. But sometimes I start getting confused once I've read about a case and it's it could possibly be similar to another case. I don't, I don't know of another case that's exactly like this based on the different components of, you know, everything that happened. Because it's crazy that, for one thing, a random act of violence occurred against Gianni and then he the perpetrator returned in the vehicle that uh drew the attention of his girlfriend and his brother the guy coming back in the vehicle which is crazy to begin with and skips a little bit and it talks about him uh changing out the license tag so what did he do with his motorcycle he returned to the mall because he feared According to the prosecutor, he feared that his motorcycle was ultimately going to tie him to the crimes, right? Uh, and at that point, it was just the one crime, which would be the murder and the carjacking, I guess. But the other two uh, people were just there wondering what happened to him at that point, right? right. Okay, right. and so he ends up with the vehicle, that he's stolen and the body ends up in the trunk. What did he do with his motorcycle at the mall? I went through this. Okay. So the reason this ends up on here is obviously it's Christmas. I saw this case in about four or five months after it happened. But the first thing that I saw about it was a description of the suspect. So what I, what I could not figure out was, Prior to them finding Johnny, was he a suspect in Sal and Iona's death? He is the number one suspect. That's the part that, like, I remember way But it makes sense, too, because, you know, the situation would be somebody knew, uh, you know, his cousin knew he was in the parking lot, right? And then you've got this really bizarre... Iona had called 911, and so I assume they sent someone because she had called 911, and then the line went dead, and I imagine uh, I imagine they sent someone. I actually don't know, but, you know, their bodies were discovered. They were in the parking lot of a mall, right? Right. And it was the fiancé and brother of a man who is now missing with his vehicle. Right. So reading back through it, when I started reading this case, there was no Mercado. He was not in the picture yet. Does that make sense? 
Right, because they were looking for the guy who was missing. <laughs> right, that's that's the part that it makes actually, it such a weird case. It actually got to the point where I believe, and maybe I think this is this case, it didn't go to trial, but as uh, facts were presented, they were able uh, to, so to, to dispel the possibility of the defense being that he just stole the car, Right. Yeah. Um, they were able to connect his DNA with, I believe, a bottle of uh, odor eliminator that uh, was used on the body. And they also had they had I think they presented surveillance footage of him buying it from his own job. It was right. either surveillance footage or a purchase record. Right. So they were able to sort of put all the speculation that something else, like, so I guess what they would be getting at is that ultimately Mercado wasn't responsible for the murders. He just ended up stealing a car that had a body in it. Right. (laughs) And he even tried to sell it. (laughs) That is crazy. Because they ultimately, they got, they were able to say, no, no, that's not what happened. And here's how we know that. And it comes down to a, a bottle of odor eliminator, which is very interesting. And, you know, they did initially, they question his mental competency. And I'm sure it was, I don't know who did that. Probably, I would assume it's the defense attorney, and I assume it's just par for the course. Well, so how that goes down, and I'll, there's some interesting search warrants on this case, but how that goes down is when he's arrested, you have to realize that since the day it happened, is it's six months, like almost to the day that they arrest him uh, in June of 2014. June 21st, 2014, he's arrested. Uh, the family confirms there's been an arrest made in the, in the three deaths. He's booked on three counts of first-degree murder. And then on June 22nd, uh, his attorney comes out. This guy, Michael Berg, is his attorney. He comes out and says that he is not uh, guilty. He has nothing to do with this. And Mercado was hospitalized for unspecified injuries that were suffered sometime after he was booked into the jail on June 21st of 2014. I have not seen confirmation of this, but I believe they were self-inflicted. On June 23rd, 2014, they have a news conference where they basically say, you know, the Flint and Belvedere families um, now have a little bit of closure related to the charging and arrest of Mercado. So Mercado gets arraigned later that week and he's formally charged with three counts of first degree murder and that it becomes a, it's considered a capital case. So he could potentially be facing the death penalty. Then it kind of goes dark for a couple of months and he shows up in court for uh, a September 2nd, 2014 hearing. And they start talking about what you're talking about. And that's DNA evidence that links him to what's happened and the search warrants show that like this was a pretty deep investigation where they were looking very hard at the victim's family members and that included the father of the Belvedere brothers uh, Iona Flint's stepfather they had checked uh, family bank accounts they had this is one of those cases it's hard to talk about this part but there was some drug use going on and they even got real deep into all of the phone records of everybody, including the drug dealers. And like when I say that, like he was buying heroin every day. 
the uh, Gianni. There was a problem happening there, but it didn't have anything to do with his murder. So then they reveal that uh, when he was shot, they believed that it was possible that Johnny was actually sitting in the mall parking lot uh, using either heroin or something else that he could shoot up. And that was what drew Mercado's attention to him in the first place. As September rolls along and they release the warrants to the media, the media goes over everything. Something happens where Mercado's attorneys begin to raise questions about whether or not Mercado is competent to be able to stand trial. The judge has ordered Mercado to be held without bail. Uh, They want him evaluated in October of 2014, but they suspend the criminal proceedings at this time, which is that's sort of an unusual mood. It's not unusual for defense attorneys to try and do this. It's not unusual for defendants to try and do this. But it is unusual that a judge goes along with it. Here's why. September 17, 2014, the judge orders Mercado to be held without bail and to undergo a mental competency exam uh, on October the 10th of 2014. Well, for whatever reason, on November 3rd, 2014, in the next hearing... Judge Brannigan, who is overseeing all of this, he finds that Mercado is not competent to stand trial. He orders that he be treated at the Patton State Mental Hospital for what's known as a rehabilitative period. Now, in this particular instance, it was for three years or until he could be found competent. I know that happens, but why do they do that? What exactly? So he was found to be suffering. This is three different professionals. They found that Mercado was schizophrenic, psychotic, and suffering from catatonic depression. Why did they put him through a rehabilitative period at that point so that they can make him competent to stand trial after he's been found incompetent in that manner? Well, because if they don't find him competent, then he can't stand trial. So for a year, this goes on for a year. Yeah. And suddenly, in September of 2015, Mercado is sent from the psychiatric facility back to jail, and the defense requests a new competency hearing. He's found competent to stand trial at this point, but then he undergoes a new mental competency hearing, which acts as a mini-trial, a bench trial. On December 14, 2015, he is ends up being ruled competent to stand trial and face the murder charges in the triple homicide. And this is where Brian Erickson begins explaining that the killings appear to be random, perhaps stemming from a road rage, in, road rage incident. But this is two years. I don't think it's that crazy. I think that um, the whole... For one thing, this to me, this is those parallel roads that we talk about between like what happened versus what uh, played out in court or, you know, what is on the record is happening. And so um, while he was getting help, I feel like competency to stand trial is it's a completely subjective uh, assessment by a professional. Right. So a defendant being competent versus not being competent, it, it it lies in the hands of the people who are recruited to make those decisions. Right. And it's treaded on very carefully because you never want anybody to be able to just 
kill three people and then be incompetent to stand trial. Right. Right. Now, granted, I just want to make sure they didn't, uh, he was ruled incompetent to stand trial. He wasn't ruled to be insane. Right. It, 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 the only hearings I find records of are strictly for mental competency. Okay. And so that finding is, it's not the same thing as being um, found not guilty by reason of insanity. I don't know if other people confuse the two, but I have to kind of um, step back and sort of adjust my thinking. Yeah, because I understand me, what you're saying. It's sort of, to me, it's the same thing, being incompetent, being insane. I mean, who cares? Except competency doesn't go to culpability in right. in doing the crime. It goes to uh, being able to participate in your defense. So having committed the crime, it's then... The justice system's role to make sure you are competent to stand trial for the crime that you committed. And in doing that, um, it's, you know, they do sometimes have to rehabilitate your competency, but it, it doesn't mean that you can be found. Uh, it doesn't have any bearing on the fact that you committed the crime or you didn't if you're found not guilty. It just means that at the present moment when you are being charged with it and you're going before a judge with your defense attorney, something is is making probably at least two, I, I'm just saying because both sides go in on it, um, at least two professionals believe that for whatever reason you are not in at a level that you can participate in your own defense and it's not going to serve justice for you to have a trial. I think I maybe misphrased my statement out loud. And this, so I want to say it because I want to hear your thoughts on like the specific part of it. I understand rehabilitating defendants to potentially stand trial. I understand that. What I don't understand is Someone is found incompetent. There are multiple reasons listed by multiple professionals on both sides. And that's what happened here. There are a lot like, so one person thought he was psychotic. Another person thought he was schizophrenic having a psychotic episode. Another person thought he had catatonic depression and possibly schizophrenia. So there's something wrong with this guy. They find him mentally incompetent and he goes to a hospital. That hospital starts giving him medication and therapy to try and see if on medication with therapy, he can be competent to participate in his defense, understand the charges against him, and and go through the trial part, right? Right. That I understand. But then they put it on as a capital case. Right, because um, it had no bearing. Uh, in That's fact, automatic grounds for uh, appeal everywhere in the world is right? that later on, that could be automatic grounds for appeal. Oh, but... Okay, I understand what you're saying. And like I said, parallel roads here, right? Right. Because every single first-degree murder case and the history of first-degree murder cases in states that uh, still sentence the death penalty put the death penalty on the table so the defendant will accept life in prison without a trial. Right. And it's cla- it's a classic move, and it and as prosecutors, when you know somebody's guilty, and I mean, I looked through some of the evidence they had in 
it was uh, it was pretty substantial. And so I don't feel like there's anything wrong with saying we're going to charge you, we're going to seek the death penalty in these three. Uh, this, if this was, if there ever was a case for the death penalty, I would say that this would be up there. I mean, it's cold-blooded killing from what we can see, and he didn't offer any additional information to suggest otherwise, right? Right. And so I don't fault the prosecutors for doing it, but they specifically did it to say, you know, okay, so if you plead to life in prison, we won't go to trial and you won't get the death penalty. But you can't do that with someone who's been rendered incompetent. So by taking the plea, he's not going to have any appeals to anything, right? I mean, you take a plea, you've got a plea. And so it was all strategy, I think. They rehabilitate his competence because, again, all the professionals are ruling on his state of mind at the time that they are assessing him, not at the time of the crime. I understand where you're coming from. I just get, you know, the next thing in the timeline is what's making me say this. So February uh, 2016, the DA declares that they are seeking the death penalty against Mercado. That he has pled guilty to the three murders, um, and they're hoping that the trial will start within a year. Mercado's attorney, who at this point is Gary Gibson, he's pled not guilty, right? He he pleaded not guilty to the three murders okay. at this point in time in February of 2016. Right, right, right. And his attorney, who is now Gary Gibson, said that prosecutors have a lot to prove in this complicated case, including a motive which remains a mystery. A couple of months go by, and in July of 2016, a San Diego judge rules that Mercado is going to stand trial for the killings of the Belvedere brothers in Flint. Uh, at this point, his trial date is set for April 3rd, 2017, and he will be facing the death penalty. So that's July 19th, 2016. And then July 26, 2016, Mercado and his cellmate, Abel Martinez, who was 52, were hospitalized after a drug overdose in the jail. So they're in the custody of the San Diego County Sheriff's Department. And while in their cell at the San Diego Central Jail, they experienced medical distress from a drug overdose. So for the next month, Mercado is held in the hospital and his health supposedly improves and he is returned to the San Diego Central Jail on August 29, 2016. January 12, 2017, Mercado changes his plea to guilty, uh, and he appears in court and, and pleads guilty, where they confirm that this was a random, likely an act of road rage gone terribly violent and wrong, at least the prosecutors do. He pleads guilty, and he's sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, of parole times three. Uh, and about a week later, the... Local media, including NBC7, where a lot of this comes from, they start to report on the the detailed look at the evidence that the prosecutors had planned to present at a jury trial had the case gone to a jury trial. And that's what I was covering at the, the top of things, sort of the timeline of how all of this went down. I, I was looking to see if I could find a record of what happened to the motorcycle. I found it. What happened? This is... Uh... After he has killed all three victims and um, he misses his sh uh, his shift at work, uh, Mercado, he's not answering phone calls uh, 
that inquire about his whereabouts and his defendant, the defendant's cell phone records indicate that he fled and hid out in Riverside and Orange counties until the crime scene was cleared on December 24th, 2013, between 10 50 AM and 11 32 AM. This would be the morning after the shooting at, you know, early in the morning, like 1 AM or whatever it was while still hiding in Orange County. He, he made three web searches on his cell phone that referenced Mall shooting, San Diego, and Mission Valley Mall. He deleted the search queries from his phone, and he put a quote, R period, I period, P, end quote, on his cell phone calendar on the date of December 24th, uh, 2013, so R, rest in peace. Right. Uh, on the same day, so this is, you know, later in the morning of the day of the murders at 11 30 AM. He did. Ha- he had not found any media reports tying him or the, his motorcycle to the crime, according to his cell phone records. And so he returned to the Macy's parking lot to retrieve his inoperable motorcycle. He arrived at the mall at 1 30 PM. And that was within an hour of the San Diego police homicide detectives clearing Sal and Iona's, uh, the scene of their murder and beginning, uh, launching the, the search for Gianni who wasn't there. I mean, he's in the trunk of his car at this point, I believe. And so the defendant drove to a neighborhood near his house, his work and a U-Haul dealer. He parked Gianni's car at Ambassador Avenue and Jade Coast Road used black duct tape to adhere stolen or fake license plate over the easily detected Utah plates on Gianni's car. He took a photo with his cell phone of the cross street sign so he wouldn't forget where he parked it. He walked the short distance to the U-Haul dealer and then um, at by 2.40, his cell phone and financial records indicate that he rented a U-Haul pickup truck with a motorcycle trailer. Yep. And he returned to get the inoperable motorcycle. Do you know what he did next? I'm just curious if you know the rest of this, because I do. Well, what do you mean? Like when he start, he well, he content. He basically goes on and he has to come up with a story about what has happened to him because he's been. So it, that all tells me that he wasn't planning that necessarily. Well, hold on. Let me back up a little bit. So in. 2012, and this is in the Statements of the Facts, by the way, if you want to like pull it up, uh, Statement of the Facts laid out everything that happened with motorcycles. Uh, so Mercado had a history of staging motorcycle accidents, attempting to fleece money from other drivers involved. One incident was in August of 2012, and according to court records, Mercado crashed his motorcycle into the back of a man's truck, and later that day, he sent the driver an aggressive email where a list of motorcycle parts were listed with the prices for repair. In that situation, according to court records, Mercado told the driver that the cost for repairs came out to over $2,000, but that Mercado would be willing to settle for half that amount in cash. Uh, records indicate that a San Diego district attorney investigator had contacted the driver of that vehicle who explained that Mercado had crashed his motorcycle into the back of the driver's truck while at a stoplight and that the driver assisted Mercado with his bike and then called the police. 
When the driver received the aggressive email from Mercado, the record showed the driver verified with his father and an insurance company he would not be responsible for the cost that Mercado was asking for, and he ignored Mercado's further email and text messages. <clears throat> but where that gets interesting and ties back in is the statement of facts presented that the, there was evidence Mercado filed a false insurance claim on his motorcycle just days after the triple homicide took place. So he, he picked up the U-Haul truck and trailer, he removed the motorcycle from the crime scene after San Diego Police Department investigators were no longer at the scene. But two days later, prosecutors said that Mercado, fearing his motorcycle at time to the crime scene, staged a fake motorcycle accident and filed a claim with its insurance provider. The Geico insurance adjuster that handled Mercado's claims told investigators he doubted the story Mercado told about the fake accident, but processed the claim anyways for a total of $2,539. At the change of plea hearing for Mercado, uh, the prosecutors credited Border Patrol officers who pulled over and inspected Mercado's vehicle less than a month after the homicides as providing critical evidence that led to Mercado's arrest. On January 18th of 2014, a day after Johnny's car and body were discovered in the city of Riverside, which prosecutors believed that Mercado had planted there, Agents at the Border Patrol checkpoint on the I-5 near San Clemente pulled Mercado over for a routine stop. While searching Mercado's vehicle at that checkpoint stop, Border Patrol agents found an AR-15 assault rifle, a 45 caliber semi-automatic handgun, and a 22 caliber handgun with a modified silencer. Agents eventually released Mercado from that stop, unaware of his connection to the murders, but held Mercado's weapons for further investigation. It was that move by Border Patrol agents that Erickson credits as a major turning point in the investigation, as the DNA from those firearms was uploaded to California's DNA database system, CODIS, and was linked to DNA that was discovered at the Mission Valley and Riverside crime scenes. Three days after the DNA match was determined, Mercado was arrested on June 24th. First, 2014, for those for those three murders. In the court records, Erickson said that investigators found gun manuals and instructions for making a homemade silencer for the 22 caliber handgun on Mercado's home computer. Uh, the court records also detailed new information about his mental health and suicide attempt that he had following his arrest. This is a crazy case. It just goes on and on and on, and it just gets weirder. The investigators... Uh... In as because of how it sort of played out, the randomness of it, and they did like really extensive, um, a, a really in, extensive investigation into cell phone tower dumps. That is why they so confidently uh, assert that the victim and the perpetrator they had no interaction ever uh, before the night that it happened because they actually took all that information that they were able to get from uh, the cell phone tower dumps. And, you know, I guess they analyzed it and the paths didn't cross, right? Yeah. Um, which is really, that's really interesting. I've never actually seen that. I'm sure they do it, right? But it seems like it's it would only be relevant in certain circumstances because it would be really hard to pen it down except just to basically exclude it because, from what I understand, a cell phone tower dump it would be where they retrieved data that every cell phone that pinged in to that tower during a certain time, they could pull the numbers. And I assume they had everybody's phone number. And so they were just cross-referencing to see, like, did 
the perpetrator's number and any of the victim's numbers, were they hitting a cell phone uh, tower at the same time at any point, right? Right. Because uh, this was in 2013. I have to kind of remind my brain what time period we're in because we've covered from like 1880 to present day. But in 2013, we're already, we all have smartphones and smartphones, even if you're not making calls, they're constantly in contact with uh, whatever cell phone towers you're nearby. And so while it wouldn't be definitive to establish a link necessarily, it could definitively establish, establish no link. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because it basically would, it just says like they, if they had been in the same place at the same time and they had crossed paths with one another, then there would be a good chance that both of our, you know, the perp and the victim's cell phones would be pinging off the same tower at the same time. There's a number of weird things as we wrap this one up that I was going to throw out there. This is from 2014, also from San Diego, NBC7. You have to remember, this is like before all the other things that we just talked about happened. They've really just arrested uh, Mikado at this point. There's not a lot of extra information, but... They started to release like dozens of search warrants uh, through information requests in summer of 2014, and NBC7 was going through it all, and they found some really interesting information. One of those things that you just mentioned was uh, they. this was an early example of what I now call geofencing, and that's the cell phone tower dumps you're referencing. But they they essentially were looking for a connection to the victims from over 64,000 uh, cell phone pings in the the day surrounding the murder to see if there was anybody connected in there because there was a drug problem with one recreational drug use with the others they were trying to find anything they could to potentially uh, connect uh, one person to to what had happened but here's some of the weirder things that were in here so there was DNA evidence brought up and I, I, don't, I don't know if you saw all of this or not. But they brought up uh, DNA evidence that somehow Leonard Belvedere, they tried to tell, uh, they tried to say that his DNA was on one of the expended shell casings that was found on aprons on the left rear seat of the vehicle that they describe in the warrant. Have you heard about this part? He's the father, right? Yeah, yeah. He's the father. Of uh, Sal and Gianni. Yeah, uh, and, yes, I have heard of that. Mm-hmm. So it the DNA bounced, as, uh, so as as he pulled the trigger and the casing flew out, it bounced on the inside of the vehicle, and that's how they think the DNA got there. Just completely random. Yeah, but it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, where a lot of t- was that this episode or is that a different episode? I, I don't know what you're going to say. Um, we were just talking about Foster and Freeman. Uh, that was the uh, the other episode. Oh, okay. So uh, in the previous episode, we were talking about trying to get fingerprints off of discharged uh, bullet casings. And then in this instance, it would be getting DNA off of that. Uh, they also found, like, they went through the craziest shit. Um, they went through DNA found on drug paraphernalia in the parking lot. And, like, they interviewed, like, people who had been previously arrested because of that. And 
Iona Flint in a search warrant dated uh, June 3rd, a homicide detective discovered that Iona Flint, when she was 14 to 16 years of age, so several years, several years earlier, had posted a blog on the internet stating that her stepfather was a serial killer. Oh my. But it was just, she was upset about the relationship. So it was like one of these things where you're, you're telling a fictional story, but, but they end up investigating there. They, they pulled different items from the parking lot of a mall. And this this is one of those things where while the, the 64,000 calls captured is interesting to me. Can you imagine trying to find evidence in a mall parking lot at Christmas time? Um, no, I like, I just can't even, I imagine that was disgusting. Yeah. So the final timeline from that time, this is back in September, 2014, uh, said on December 23rd, that around seven o'clock PM, Johnny was purchasing two grams of heroin from his dealer. And then he had gone around 11 o'clock. So seven o'clock, then 11 o'clock, he purchased seven Xanax pills from a drug dealer. Then they had some surveillance video in there showing an unknown man entering the mall and loitering near Iona's work. Uh, Iona's work. Uh, that was at 1118. At 1122, showed the same man on a cell phone. And between 1128 and 1143, Johnny's cell phone was pinging near the mall. And then that's when he has the phone call with a relative. And at 2343, Johnny's phone call ends. It disconnects. And so then they pick up again where... It rolls over onto Christmas Eve. Uh, so at twelve twelve, uh, Iona and her coworker left their work location, and at twelve twenty two, a surveillance video showed Iona exiting the mall with a man following her. This does not turn out to be the killer, by the way. And at one fourteen, Iona called nine one one and says, "I've been shot." So this is what happened in between. There is what I described earlier. She was waiting around, and they see. Johnny's car show back up. Uh, but by by 124 in the morning, uh, the police arrived on the scene. So this all unfolds in like a blink of an eye, really. Right, because she she had the wherewithal to call 911. Yeah, but it all takes place, all of the what we described takes place between 1143 and 124 in the morning. And because she called 911, I think that's really the reason they were able to preserve as much as they could, because even though they didn't know where Johnny was, they were able later when they found him to connect it all back to, to being related. The ridiculousness of this crime uh, shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't overlook like what a tragedy it is. First of all, for Gianni to be shot and his car stolen, regardless of what happened. And again, we have no input on that. Um, from the perpetrator, but also just like, what are the odds that the perpetrator returns in the same vehicle where his fiance or girlfriend and brother are looking for him? It seems astronomical to me. I imagine it was based on the fact that he had been on the phone with the cousin she had expected him to be there to pick her up. I would imagine she didn't have another ride. And that's probably why she called her. Sal. Her. Yeah. Uh, her boyfriend's brother. And, you know, they were concerned, but not concerned enough to call the police and say, hey, this guy's, you know, was supposed to pick me up. And he's not here. Right. So it's incredible that 
I don't even think that Mercado would have had any idea of who he was killing. No. And so it's tragic because the family lost two sons and then, you know, uh, Iona's family lost her. And these were young adults. And this reminded me sort of of when we talked about when Lois Duncan passed away or we talked about her Daughter. Uh, daughter being killed and how all that stuff came out like i mean it was just tons and tons of terrible things that everybody was doing like little petty crimes but it ended up none of it was relevant yeah. and this case kind of went the same sort of way where you had like some drug use and then some uh on part of the defendant some insurance fraud and random things that came out but ultimately had nothing to do with this completely random act of violence. It just is really hard for me to believe that in the randomness of it, he was able to hit the victims that he did. To sort of swing back around, uh, the guns that were confiscated when he was attempting to uh, flee, those were what linked him to the crime. And, you know, he was trying to get those back after they've been confiscated because he knew that it was going to tie him to the crimes, right? Or it was possible. And so that is what the connection ultimately was. Um, It was forensic evidence that was collected because of his own stupidity. He was trying to flee with guns in the vehicle. But they didn't know he was fleeing at the time, but they confiscated them. What a terrible way to spend Christmas. No kidding. Wondering where one family member is and knowing you've lost basically two other family members. And you know that there was a shadow that something had occurred and that Gianni had done it. Or been involved with it, yeah, because he's missing. Right, and he was supposed to have been there. And so, you know, it. I'm sure there's all kinds of really salacious uh, versions of what possibly, you know, might have happened. And uh, it... You know, your imagination can run wild, but ultimately none of it would have been true. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com, and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at TrueCrimeXS. Or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. Boom, boom, boom.